Well, good morning and happy new year. Special shout out to the members of my community group here in the front row wearing the Kirkland Signature sweatshirts. That's the, the cheer squad, so I appreciate you guys. Um, they wouldn't have let me live it, live it down if I didn't shout them out. But I, uh, I have the privilege this morning of concluding our sermon series on the greatest stories ever told. And so this is a series that we started back in the fall. And in that series, series we did a survey of a lot of the most famous Old Testament Stories. So the stories all the way from Adam and Eve to Noah uh, to Abraham and Isaac to uh, jo- um, Joshua, Elijah, Jonah, um, just so many in between. And it's a, a series that really blessed me personally. But um, what we learned through that, that series is that these stories and the Old Testament really as a whole are all a shadow of things to come. They, everything points to Jesus. And so uh, with, with the characters we looked at in some of these stories, um, we, we saw that they were types of Christ. So in other words, maybe some of their characteristics or the problem they had to solve or the, the situation they were in, um, these are things that, that they attempted, they were human, they were imperfect, they left a lot to be desired, something that Jesus would need to fulfill perfectly later. So just as an example, um, Adam, we covered Adam, the, the father of all humanity, and he was a representative of all of humanity, and he was tempted, and he failed, and he brought sin into the world, and it's something that affects all of us. And he created the need for a savior, a new Adam, a new representative of all humanity. That was Jesus. Uh, we also had Moses. So Moses was the great deliverer. He brought his people from the land of Egypt out of bondage. He was the mediator between God and men, but he was only a man. He couldn't be the perfect mediator because he was not also God like Jesus was. Jesus is the perfect mediator. And Moses couldn't deliver from spiritual sin. He couldn't deliver from uh, spiritual death. And so that's what we needed Jesus for. And then finally there was Jonah. Um, I don't know why that one stuck out to me so much. I think it was maybe the the email that went out on Wednesday with all the pictures of what the fish might have looked like. Hopefully you all saw that. My picture didn't make the cut. But um, I'll talk to the one who sends the emails. But... Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, figuratively dead, and then God delivered him to go do the work that God had for him. And of course, Jesus was literally dead for three days, and he rose from the dead, and he did the work that God had intended intended for all of history. So those stories are stories that all of Israel would have been familiar with, told over thousands of years. And And again, they're a shadow of this Messiah to come. They they would have created this anticipation. All these generations of Israel would have known these stories and anticipated this Messiah. So fast forward to when the Messiah is actually born. Um, we, We covered that last week. So Jesus is here. And now there's a generation of Israelites who gets to walk the earth with him. So that's the last story we're going to cover today. This is the story of Anna and Simeon. Um, They are two such Israelites who get to walk the earth with Jesus. So we'll, uh, we'll look at the story, their story. We'll see what we can learn. And uh, the story starts with Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus to the temple. And this wasn't um, just a family vacation. It wasn't a joyride. Um, this was in accordance with the law of Moses. So I'll do you a favor. We're not going to put this on the screen. But Leviticus 12 
outlines the laws for purification after childbirth. So that's the one you've probably heard, circumcision on the eighth day for male children. Um, Mary and Joseph were obedient to that. Jesus went through with that. Um, and then this is kind of the next step, bringing the child to the temple to be dedicated to God. So they're bringing him to the temple. They're bringing him to Jerusalem. And he's going to meet some people. So we meet two of those people in this text, Simeon and Anna. So I think uh, for the first point that we'll cover today is just let's pay attention to how they reacted when they met Jesus, when they encountered Jesus. Um, so Simeon, what we know about him, he's described as being righteous and devout. So this man is an Israelite. This man is one who would be familiar with all those Old Testament stories. He'd be familiar that we're expecting this Messiah. God's made some promises that need to be fulfilled. And he is, uh, and he's righteous and devout. He's eagerly anticipating this Messiah. We also know that he's old. He's an old man. So he's anticipating this Messiah for quite some time. And we can just picture him throughout the years, really throughout the decades, just this devout man on his knees praying day by day, decade by decade, God, if I could only meet the Messiah. And God grants it to him. This is a cool moment. Um, Simeon gets to hold Jesus in his arms, and how does he react? This is what we can learn. When he encounters Jesus, verse 28 says that Simeon blessed God, and then in 29 it says, uh, he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. So what Simeon is essentially saying here is, God, you kept your promise. I have everything I need now. I can die. You can take me. Okay, so that's how Simeon reacted. We're also introduced to Anna in this text. What we know about Anna is, um, I, I think it's safe to assume she was also righteous and devout because we're told that uh, she was in the temple day and night with prayer and fasting. Um, she probably had lived a pretty tough life. She was, uh, had been a widow for several decades. She'd probably be over 100 years old at this point in the story. And um, despite that tough life, she's rejoicing, she's, she's in the temple, and she also gets to meet Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah that she would have been familiar with. So what was her reaction? This is verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak to him, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. How does she react? She can't keep her mouth shut about what she just saw, who she just met. She met Jesus. She was so impressed that she wants to tell everybody about him. She's grateful. She's joyful. She has a grateful heart. So Simeon and Anna combined together. What can we learn from them? Well, it's when we encounter Jesus, believers should have a grateful heart and respond accordingly. Believers should have a grateful heart and respond accordingly. How do we know if we have that? How do we know if we have a grateful heart? Well, I think um, a couple barometers, a couple ways we could kind of test this is, number one, think about all the conversations you're having with your friends, your family members, your community group. What's the general characterization of those conversations? What's, what's the general tone? Are those conversations filled with angst, maybe discontentment? Or is it filled with gratitude about what God has done for you, what he's continuing to do in your life? What are you focusing on? What are you talking about most? Then there's your thought life. What are you dwelling on? Are you always anxious? Are you always discontent? Or are you grateful? So we know how we should act when we encounter Jesus. 
I think we have a good example from Anna and Simeon. And I think we have another good example from Anna too. We mentioned it already, but if you believe the gospel, tell others. If this is something that we're excited about, if it's something that we're, uh, that we're grateful for, we should naturally want to evangelize the truth that we know. And so that's what Anna did. That's what we should do as well. And uh, I think a good warning comes to mind with this too from Luke chapter 17, a little bit further in the book. Um, there's this story of Jesus and the 10 lepers. And Jesus heals all 10 lepers. They were sick. He made them whole. And how many lepers come back and thank Jesus? Just one. So we should be the people who when we encounter Jesus, when he heals us, we can't forget to be thankful and we can't forget to thank Jesus. So I think the second point we can draw from the stories of Anna and Simeon is that God is sovereign and we can trust him. So well-established point by this point, uh, I hate to keep harping on Anna and Simeon's age, but they're old and I have to do it for this point. These are two older people. So you can picture with their age, and, uh, and their background, anxious for the Messiah, we could probably relate to them if throughout the course of their life they were impatient with God. They saw the way the world was going, they wanted that Messiah, and they wanted him now, and they ideally would like to meet him. So um, we, we know the, the, the language for Simeon here, the, the way it puts it for him is um, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. So what this means, it's the consolation of Israel is the hope that God would come to rescue and comfort his people. And the expression Luke uses in this text, it actually ties in with the wording of messianic prophecies in Isaiah. Um, so this hope involves salvation and forgiveness of sins. So the wording here is not a Messiah just for political means, but a Messiah for salvation and the forgiveness of sins. That's what Simeon and Anna were waiting for. And they were probably anxious, and they were probably impatient to a certain degree. But what we know, with all that in mind, actually, let me back up. So as we think about them being anxious, okay, what, what are some things that we are anxious about today? How, how are we anxious for God to act? I think another way we can put that is, what do we require God to do before we can be at peace? To trust in God and rejoice. So what's going on right now? The stock market, retirement funds, do we need those to pick up before we can be at peace and rejoice in God? Is it the way the culture's going? Anyone who's paying attention to culture knows that God is gonna have to intervene at some point. It just keeps getting worse and worse, it seems. And are we impatient for that? Are we impatient for God to act? Are we not trusting him? The persecution of Christians, the different laws being assigned in different states, I mean, these are all things that it's, it's good to... Um, to care, but are we anxious? Are we content with God? Maybe it's a, a personal thing. Maybe it's uh, health-related or financial-related or spiritually-related, something you're working on, and you're anxious for God to act. We know with Simeon, he, when he was holding baby Jesus in his arms, that was all he needed. Nothing else mattered. He was content to the point where he was content to just die in that moment. God, you can take me now. So we do know that God's timing is perfect, no matter what our anxiety level. So there are a number of different examples we could probably give for this to explain or show how God's timing is perfect, but one that really struck me 
um, the, the men's Bible study that meets for, for Crosspoint 6 a.m. Friday mornings, we were studying Galatians. Uh, that was the previous book we were studying. And as part of that, I was reading a commentary um, that, that talked about how the timing of Jesus' birth was perfect. Okay, so Jesus, he was you know, a real person, of course, born, real point in history. And we have the benefit of some hindsight now to see that that was a pretty good time for him to be born. So let me elaborate on that a little bit, just to show how God's timing is perfect. So um, the, the text that it pulls from is Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, that's the key phrase with regard to timing. That means the timing was perfect. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So what made the timing perfect? Let's go through this a little bit. So it was the perfect timing theologically. Um, really, the old, entire Old Testament to this point, like we mentioned, had been pointing to Jesus to this point in time. So there was the, the promise given to Abraham, the law given to Moses. There were over 300 different prophecies pointing to this specific point in time that Jesus was born. It was the perfect timing religiously. The paganism and the idolatry of ancient Rome was creating this culture, this this longing, this spiritual hunger for something better. And, and this was both Jews and Romans. It was just things were so bad culturally that there had to be something better. People recognized there had to be something to save them from that current situation. It was the perfect timing culturally. The, uh, the Greek language at this time had just kind of taken over as the predominant language in the world. Um, so there was essentially a common tongue. So if you had a message to share, and especially the gospel message, it was a lot easier to share at the time Jesus was born than previously. So evangelizing was a lot easier. And then finally, it was the perfect time politically. So the birth of Jesus occurred during the period known as the Pax Romana, or Roman peace. And so this was a period characterized by um, increasing Roman imperialism. So they're taking over the known world. But at the same time, there was increased peace and stability. So that allowed for some increased infrastructure, um, travel and commerce were allowed to flourish, and with that, they were building um, just roads and roads and roads. So to travel, to share a message, not only was the language more common, but now there was a pathway to go and take the message to the corner of the earth. So you just think about that. I mean, when I read that, it, it just kind of blew my mind. And you think about this, God wasn't just sitting up in heaven looking down at earth and watching these events unfold and thinking to himself, you know what, things are shaping up pretty nicely. I think I'm going to send Jesus now. I think that'll work out best. No, <laughs> that's not how it worked. God has been shaping all of history for all time for that moment. God is sovereign. God is in control. And so God shaped salvation history for Jesus to come at the right time to have the maximum impact on mankind. So if he can do that, if he has that level of power and that level of control, what does that mean for our own lives? What does that mean for his sovereignty over us? Because we're just small players in this big story. I think it means that God is sovereign and we can trust him. So God, of course, didn't just have a, a plan for the timing of Jesus' birth. He had a plan for Jesus himself and what he came here to do. And, and this is what we see in Simeon's prophecy. So we'll revisit that. Simeon clues us in. So in chapter 2, 30 through 32... It says, For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. So Simeon here is first revealing the purpose for which Christ was born. 
The consolation of Israel is also the light of the world. So Jesus was not just the Messiah for the Jews. He came for all people, Jew and Gentile both. So that's the first part. The second part of the prophecy takes a little bit of an ominous turn. So 34 and 35, it says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So yes, Jesus is a light. But he's the kind of light that exposes. And this exposing will create opposition. And that opposition will be a piercing. You know, Jesus was pierced on the cross. And his mother was there to witness that crucifixion as well, so she was pierced also. So just picture this moment, we keep coming back to that moment, Simeon holding that baby Jesus in his arms, and just imagine the power of this moment. He sees the salvation, he sees the consolation of Israel, this is what he's been waiting for, but he also gets a glimpse of Calvary. Simeon sees that the time will come when Jesus will cause great division, the poor will be lifted up, the powerful, wealthy religious leaders will fall. The, the Jews will have to decide whether Jesus is their Messiah or not. And really, all the world is going to have to choose whether they oppose Jesus or follow him. Jesus still exposes hearts and provokes opposition today. Nobody is truly neutral when it comes to Jesus and the issue of whether he's Lord of their life. You may hear people talking about sometimes how they admire Jesus for his moral teaching or he did some cool things. You know, I saw something recently mentioning how he flipped over tables and that was a, you know, in the plus column for him. But really when, when somebody is, is it's, the ultimatum is put in front of them that, hey, he has authority over you, he has authority over your life, there is no neutral. And in fact, we all come from the same place here. We all come from a sin nature that opposes God and we're in rebellion against God. And God being perfectly holy and just will put down that rebellion. He won't stand for it. And we are a people who we don't naturally love the light. We want to do our evil deeds in darkness to where they won't be exposed. John 3.19 says it this way, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We are the people who loves the darkness more than the light. That's our, that's our normal stance. That's our baseline. But God, God sees us. God knows us. He sees our sin. He knows that we can't love him the way we're supposed to. And that's exactly why he sent Jesus. Jesus is our lifeline. He lived a perfect, sinless life then willingly died on the cross to take away our sins, then he rose from the, get, the dead to defeat sin and death forever. He puts us in a right standing with God. God uh, Jesus is the light, he's our savior, and the cross proves that he loves us. We know Jesus' posture toward us. The cross proves that he loves us. So how do we respond? Sin and unrepentance say that we hate him. Faith and repentance say that we love him. Repentance, I'm sorry, sin and hate brings death, which we deserve and receive. But if we love him, we, re we receive eternal life even though we don't deserve it. God gives it to us as a gift. So Jesus creates opposition. 
we have to make a choice. We either love him or we hate him. So if you haven't done so already, I encourage you this morning to choose life, choose Christ, and believe in him so that you might be saved. So I have to admit something um, in, in preparing for this sermon. I read the text and ident- identified the kind of the main characters in the story. I identified Mary, Joseph, Jesus, Simeon, Anna. And then after a second reading of the text, something went off like flashing lights. And I'm going to read uh, verses 25 through 27 again just to see if you catch it the same way I did. And I'm going to emphasize to help you out. So it says... Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple, and it goes on, but I tried to emphasize here, Luke is telling us that the Holy Spirit plays a major role in this story. Simeon is filled by the Holy Spirit, and he goes on to do some pretty amazing things in this story. So because of that, I wanted to just spend the rest of our time this morning talking a little bit about our last point, which is the Holy Spirit is an essential part of the Christian life. So all who have received their salvation received the Holy Spirit at the time of salvation. So if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, the Holy Spirit is indwelt with you. That's the reality we have after Pentecost. But just be honest for a second. Do you feel the power of the Spirit in the same way that Simeon did? Do you, do you have, does it feel like you have that same Spirit that Simeon did? Just summarizing what happened in this passage, over a few short verses, the Holy Spirit reveals to Simeon that he will not see death before he meets the Christ. So it gives him a glimpse into the future. Then the Spirit alters the course of Simeon's day where he actually goes to the temple and meets the Christ And then he provides a prophecy to Jesus' parents about the purpose for their child's coming to this earth. That's power. Are you experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit in your everyday life? So while all believers are indwelt by the Spirit, not all believers can be described as being filled with the Spirit. There's a little bit of a distinction here. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to experience his full working and power in and through us. Say that again, to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to experience his full working and power in and through us. So you might be wondering, what does that look like? What does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, in short, someone who's filled with the Spirit is going to be filled with the same characteristics Jesus demonstrated when he walked this earth. If if we take a survey of the New Testament, if we really read our New Testament and we pay special attention to what Jesus was like as a person, Someone who's filled with the Spirit is going to model those characteristics in day-to-day life. This aligns pretty closely with the fruit of the Spirit outlined in Galatians 5. So think about it this way. The the people you know best and hang out with most and who know you best, would they describe you as more or less consistently being characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? That's the spirit-filled life. Those are the characteristics. We also get some insight here on uh, Jesus taught on the Holy Spirit in his ministry. Um, This can be found in John chapters 14 through 16. Um, But it kind of gives us some of the, the benefits of the Holy Spirit too. So Jesus called the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. So he makes us truthful. 
He's our teacher, so he gives us knowledge and wisdom. He is our guide, so he leads us in the right path. He glorifies Jesus, making less of us. He reveals things to come, making us wise about God's future plans. So that's, in a nutshell, what the Spirit-filled life looks like. So now we'll spend some time talking about how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If that sounds appealing to you, we'll talk about how to do that. So just starting with some of the very basics of the Holy Spirit, what he is, who he is, and what he's like. So the Holy Spirit is a spirit. I said we would start basic. We're doing that. Uh, But he is a, a being that is not physical, not a material being. And not only that, but he's a person with all the qualities and powers of personality. So he has will, intelligence, feeling, knowledge, sympathy, the ability to love, see, think, hear, speak, and desire the same as any person. So who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is a person, but not only a person, but a divine person, and not only a divine person, but God, the third member of the Trinity. And there's support for this all over Scripture. I'll just give you a few here. Um, Psalm 139 attributes omnipresence to the Holy Spirit, so that's, that's a characteristic of God. Hebrews 9.14 calls the Holy Spirit eternal. Um, So all created things have a beginning, so if the Holy Spirit's eternal, he can't be a created thing. And then Matthew 28, 19, Jesus, um, the Great Commission, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We know this one, thank you. So the Holy Spirit is, is put on the same level with Jesus and God. The Holy Spirit is God. So what is he like? You ever wondered what the Holy Spirit is like? If he's a person, we can describe this, right? Well, in short, the Holy Spirit is exactly like Jesus. So if we use the formula, I've heard this several times, we can know what God is like by knowing what Jesus is like because Jesus is God and God is God, so they would have the same characteristics. Well, that formula also applies to the Holy Spirit. So if Jesus is God and the Holy Spirit is God, we can know that the Holy Spirit would be just like Jesus. And the New Testament tells us exactly what Jesus is like. He's the epitome of love, kindness, friendliness, warm attractiveness, gentleness, and sweetness. So that's what the Holy Spirit, we can expect him to be like. So how to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, first we have to ask ourselves a couple questions. And the first question is, can you be filled with the Holy Spirit? We need to acknowledge that the Spirit-filled life is not super Christianity or the deluxe version of Christianity, but really this is what God's plan is for believers, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we also need to accept that the Spirit is not strange or scary or eerie. I think, depending on your, your church background, there might be a little bit of baggage that comes along with the Holy Spirit and maybe some, some reason from your background to be afraid of the Holy Spirit. But if we know that the Holy Spirit is really the essence of Jesus imparted onto believers, we have nothing to be afraid of. And we just need to think about it that way. We need to believe that the Spirit-filled life is scriptural. So Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So that's a pretty general verse, but it applies to our understanding of the Spirit as well. So if we really want to be all in on the Spirit-filled life, we need to ponder the scriptures, meditate the scriptures on what it says on the Holy Spirit and go from there. So that's being sure we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. The next question is, do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And I think the natural answer would probably be yes. I mean, you think about around your family and your friends and your 
children and spouse and everyone. Wouldn't you want to be described as loving and joyful and full of self-control? And wouldn't you want to have some of that same power that was exhibited in Simeon in this story? But that's not really the question. Of course we want the benefits. Are you okay with another spirit overtaking your own? Do you want to be possessed by him? Do you want to give him total control over your entire being to take control even of your personality? Keep in mind, you'd be giving the keys to one who doesn't tolerate self-love, self-righteousness, self-admiration, self-pity. The Holy Spirit cannot possess a heart consumed with these things. There's no room for pride. The same way that purity and impurity can't exist in the same space. Do you want to give up the ways of this world? Being filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't work if you, only, if you still have one foot in this world. So you might, you might be doing the things that a righteous person does, going to church consistently and um, studying your Bible and praying and maybe going on mission trips and evangelizing, and those are all good things if done for the right reasons. But do you still have a foot in this world? Are you habitually taking part in things that God opposes? Are you addicted to the easy ways of this world? I mean, there's a number of different ways that can go. But if you are, what you're really saying is you don't want to be totally filled by the Spirit. So if the answer to those questions, can you be filled by the Holy Spirit, and do you want to be filled by the Holy Spirit, if the answer to those is yes, here's how to be filled by the Holy Spirit, and and this is all um, based in Scripture as we'll go through. This is how to receive Him. So first is to present your body to Him. This is Romans 12, 1 through 2. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what this is saying is give your all, your mind, your personality, your ambitions, your love, your everything. God can't fill what he can't have. Next is ask. So this is based from Luke 11, 9 through 13, and it says, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give a, of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The message here is simple. If God gives the good things that we ask for, and the Holy Spirit is a good thing in his will for us, if we ask for it, he'll give it to us. So we need to ask. Next is obey. Acts 5.32, And we are witnesses to these things, And so is the Holy Spirit, whom the God has given to those who obey them. This is simple. Just live by the scriptures as you understand them. Just live by the scriptures as you understand them. And if you mess up, and if you fall short, repent immediately. It's as simple as that. And then lastly here, have faith. Galatians 3.2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So again, we receive the Spirit in some degree when we're first converted, but to, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to have that Holy Spirit take total control and mold us into Jesus, uh, more like Jesus, uh, we have to have a certain level of faith. We have to have an elevated level of faith to allow him to do that. 
So, I can see it on some of the faces here. We have a lot to think about as we start this year. <laughs> when we encounter Jesus, we should be grateful, we should tell others, we should recognize that he is sovereign, we should trust him, and we do this through the power of the Spirit. Let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word this morning, and we just give you special thanks today for all the stories of the Old Testament, the purpose of the Old Testament. God, it just it shows us that we can learn lessons from every story, we can learn about your character from every story, and big picture, we can learn that you're sovereign, that you have it all under control, that you've been controlling all of this from the very beginning, God, and it was all meant to point to your son, rescuing us. And so God, we know that we should be grateful. We should, our hearts should be overflowing with gratitude for this fact. And we don't always do that. And we know we should trust you. And we don't always do that, God. So help us to trust you. Help us to love you the way we should. And God, we know we can't do that on our own. We need your power. So would you impart your spirit on us, God? Would we be filled with your spirit to love you the way we were created to? God bless us as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen.